0: Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave. Horrible words. Prone to leave the God we love. And yet that's reality, Lord, because of indwelling sin that has to be mortified day by day. And so Lord, in this moment, in this precious, powerful, truth laden worship service, come and fetter us. Bind us to you and don't let us wander. We say freely and gladly, do it, Lord, make us your slaves, and do it from the inside out. Change us at the heart so that we want to stay. We are bound by cords of love and therefore do not turn away. To that end, Lord, make us a praying people in 2004, I ask. And to that end, use this message. Through Christ I ask it. Amen. This is the beginning of prayer week, overlapping the years. We'll pray every morning except New Year's morning and Saturday, so pick a prayer time. You can find those prayer times listed right inside here. They're listed right there. Every noon time we'll be praying. They're listed there. So we've doubled the number of prayer meetings that there are during the week so that you could set your face in 2004 and here at the end of the year to say, yes, I will take some extraordinary steps this year to establish some new patterns. So the question on my mind now as I begin the year is, why do we do this? Why a week of concerted prayer? And here's my answer. This week happens, it's happened every year I've been here for 23 years now, maybe 24 if we count the first and this one. Um, it exists to make a statement. A statement first to God. We mean this. A statement to the world. This is what we're about. And a statement to our own conscience. And the statement goes like this. This week means Bethlehem Baptist Church exists to do things that cannot be done without a special, supernatural outpouring of the power of God. Period. That's why this week exists. Let me say it again. The week makes a statement to God, the world, our own conscience, that we exist as a church to do things that cannot be done without a special, supernatural work of divine grace. We do not exist to preach. We exist to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit to the end that the sovereign God would supernaturally transform people. Which I can't do and neither can you. We do not exist to teach Sunday school classes. We exist to teach Sunday school classes in the power of the Holy Spirit so that little lives are supernaturally transformed, brought to the Savior, and made radical disciples. No teacher in this church can do that. We do not exist to sing. We exist to sing in the power of the Holy Spirit, drawing on affections that have been supernaturally transformed so that they are poured out to God in praise and love beyond what any music or any singer could cause. And we don't exist to evangelize. And we don't exist to do missions. We exist to evangelize and do missions in the power of the Holy Spirit with a view towards seeing people who are absolutely, totally hard and indifferent suddenly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The point of prayer week is to make a loud statement, this church exists to do things that can't be done by human beings. We have to have help. Divine, supernatural, special grace. I just wonder, Bethlehem, do we see this? Are we in agreement on this? This is not a social club. This is not a mere human social organization. This is not a weekend pep rally. This is a band, a covenant band on two sites in five services of saved sinners who have been indwelt by grace with the Holy Spirit of God, and are being changed from one degree of glory to the next, into the image of Christ, all too slowly, all too imperfectly. We're not impressed with ourselves, but we know our identity. And it isn't mere, human, clubby, social, rah-rah togetherness. That's not the point. It's all about God. It's all about Him in us. It's all about being changed supernaturally. How can prayer be anything but the air we breathe? It's all impossible for me and you, and that's why we begin the year making a loud, clear, banner waving statement. We pray. Don't we? We pray. Why does prayer week, second question. First, why do we do it? Now, why does prayer week make that statement? That we exist to do what we can't do. Here's the reason. Prayer week, a week of concerted, extraordinary prayer, praying all night, Wednesday night, till five in the morning, a week of concerted prayer, makes that statement because God has ordained, planned, promised, designed that His special supernatural intervention happens in answer to prayer. Isn't it breathtaking to hear the Bible say, to hear Jesus say, Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door of heaven will be open. That's breathtaking. Maybe even more breathtaking are the words of the Lord's brother, James, in his fourth chapter, where he says, You do not have. Because you do not ask. That's incredible. Put it positively. If you had asked, I would have met your need. (gasps) I mean, this is the God who made the world, who holds it in being, the all-seeing, all-foreseeing, all-planning, all-governing, all-designing God, who says, I make my special supernatural and even much of my common grace contingent upon your praying this takes your breath away I don't feel equipped to pray and tell God how to run the world and God says pray Piper Ask me to do things. Ask me to do things. It's incredible. Prayer is absolutely astonishing. Now mark this. God means to get his saving purposes done in the world. Oh, don't hear that word contingent wrongly. God has sovereign purposes, saving purposes, and they will be done. Therefore, if he makes an absolutely certain outcome contingent upon this means called prayer, he will make those prayers absolutely certain. which translates for a church like this. There will always be churches who pray. And it doesn't have to be us. He can just take our candlestick away in a minute if we become huffing, puffing, self-reliant, prayerless. And just forget Bethlehem Baptist Church. Move over to a little church in the Congo and get it done. A church that gets up and says, Hallowed be your name in the world. Your kingdom come in Minneapolis. Your will be done in Minneapolis from Congo. And this church will be passed over. And God will get his work done in Minneapolis in response to that church in the Congo. He doesn't need us. But mark this. He will get his job done. And he will get it done through prayer. And therefore he will see to it that there are praying churches. And my passion is that we'd be one of them. I don't want to be passed over. I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to have the candlestick of this church removed. Does it ever blow your mind to hear Paul ask for prayer, for things that have just got to happen? Listen to this one. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 one. This is a baby church. This church is about three weeks old. And here's the apostle, super powerful, anointed apostle, saying to this baby church these words, Pray for us. Me and my team, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Here's the giant... Saying to the brand new baby Christian, ask him to make my word triumph down in Corinth when I get there. In Athens, cause me to be successful, Thessalonians. Please intercede with the Father that he would be pleased to make my words run and do in, in Corinth what he did in Thessalonica. Would you ask him? I just find that amazing. Paul operated in a milieu in which he knew the sovereign God would cause the gospel to run in triumph. Jesus said, this gospel will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the peoples and then the end will come. That is a given. That's going to happen. And Paul operates in this incredible milieu in which, pray for me that that would happen through my life. The place of prayer in the purposes of God. So, Bethlehem, let us be a praying church in 2004. Now, here's what I want to do with the rest of this message brief exposition of the text, just a few minutes, and then close with a, a vision for what the church might look like if we were gripped by this awesome privilege called prayer so first the exposition back to philippians 4 verses 4 through 7 it's worth many sermons and it would get it's going to get 6 or 7 minutes do not be anxious i'm reading at verse 6 do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to god Tell him what you want. (laughs) And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, first thing to notice is at the beginning and the end, you have the effect or design or purpose of the prayer. It's stated negatively at the beginning, don't be anxious. It's stated positively at the end, peace of God's going to rest on you beyond all rational explanation. And do you hear the fact that these are two sides of the same coin? No anxiety, peace. No anxiety, peace. Everybody can see that? This text begins with, let's be rid of anxiety, Christians. And the text ends with, the peace of God will be yours. And yes, there's no rational explanation why you should feel peace right now. You just do it. Because you ask him for what you need. And he came down on you with the assurance you're going to have what you need. Oh, to have a church full of people free from anxiety. Because anxiety produces so many sins. Oh, it makes us so rotten. You know, we become so absorbed in ourselves and pity party and licking our own wounds and expecting people to pay attention to us. And therefore, we don't have any energy left over for anybody else. And we can't be loving people. And oh, anxiety is a killer. And this text is just written to say, it can go. And Paul, if anybody, had a right to be anxious. He's thrown in prison in every city he came to. Beaten with a whip five times in his life. Beaten with rods three times. He never knew what what forms the pain coming in this time, Lord. Just go, obey me, and I'll meet your needs, and you will have peace. I mean, how can you explain Paul and Silas sitting in the basement the dungeon of the jail at midnight in Philippi, singing. You sing when you're in a dungeon in the middle of the night? Singing. So the first thing we notice from the text is the aim or design or effect of prayer is to eliminate anxiety and replace it with the peace of God that just goes beyond all rational explanation. I think that's what it means when it says surpasses all understanding. Now, notice the, word, uh, the words of how this comes about. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. First, the words, in everything. In everything, let your request be known to God. In everything, in everything, let your request be made known to God. Translation. Pray about everything. Don't be a crisis prayer, right? Only when there's crisis, I cry out. Rather, this text says everything. Pray for me right now. Pray for the people in this room right now. Pray for the Kasongo family right now. As you leave... Pray that God would direct you to somebody to say a good word to. As you get in your car, pray for safety on the way home. As you arrive home, pray for a godly, peaceful afternoon. As you eat, thank Him for the food. Pray, pray, pray about everything. Constantly offering up, I need, I need, I need. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The Christian life is a breathing of prayer because you need Him all the time. Every minute of your day, you are dependent on the Lord for life and breath and everything. So it says, in everything let your requests be made known to God. Not in crisis, but in everything. And then he uses these three ways of praying. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Just a word about those three phrases. Prayer is the big inclusive word and it's distinctly religious and is only used in the Bible and elsewhere for talking to God. So it's the big, everything is included in the word prayer. But the word supplication, as you can see, means one kind of prayer and in fact it is a secular word, simply means ask for things. So in all your devotional life of prayer... Be a supplicator, that is, ask for things. Be an asker. Don't be like my grandmother. I don't know whether she's with the Lord or not. I doubt it, frankly. Mamon. Don't be like Mamon. With a kind of mock humility. She says, oh, I don't need to pray. God has more important things to do than to hear me. He's busy with bigger things than that. That's wicked. You know why? Not just because God said, ask me for things, but because God intends to show his glory by being the giver, not the getter of her puny service. God means to be the benefactor, not the beneficiary in our relationship. The benefactor, the one who gives, gets the glory. We don't pray because we deserve to have our needs met. We pray because it gives God glory to meet our needs. The one who is rich gets glory. I'm bankrupt. I'm broken. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm starving. I'm stupid. I'm confused. I'm lost. Therefore, I pray. And God is not lost, not confused. He's rich. He's never hungry. He's never thirsty. And therefore, he meets needs freely and pumps his muscles to demonstrate. Just like it says in the fighter verse, what? 1st to 2nd Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose heart is whole toward him. God is in the business of showing off his power on behalf of praying people. My grandmother didn't have a clue what humility looked like. I tried over and over. She lived with us for two years. I don't know if she ever got it. But here, you've got a chance to get it. Don't walk out of here saying, Oh, I'm not going to bother God with my prayers because he's too busy and he's, I'm just a nobody. That's the point. <laughs> We're all nobodies. And the fact that nobodies in the name of Jesus, approach the God of the universe, gives him an occasion to demonstrate the lavish power, wisdom, and grace that meets the needs of nobodies. That's the point of prayer. Don't miss this little phrase, with thanksgiving. Oh my, what a transformer that little phrase is. If all I said to you was, request, uh, that would be good and right to say, but I want to say every time you come to God with a need, which you should moment by moment, don't be ashamed of that, it's okay. I mean little practical things like I lost my key or anything, just anything, it's okay. But every time you come, be thankful when you come. There's a huge difference between somebody who is always saying, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, give me, give me, give me, give me, and is never thankful. And a person who is coming, What shall I render to the Lord for all of His benefits to me? Oh, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. That's the rhythm. The rhythm is, you don't owe me anything. You have graced me with life and breath. I don't deserve anything, therefore everything is a gift. I am so thankful for every little good in my life. I try to benefit from every painful thing in my life. I am so thankful that you are my God and my sins are forgiven and I'm accepted by you. Would you help me find my key? Or learn from the loss? thankful Bethlehem. Let's be a thankful people in 2004. Oh, so good to be around thankful people. Ingrates are pain in the rear end. You don't want to be like that. Nobody wants to be around gripers and complainers and ungrateful people. But people who are overflowing with thankfulness to people and to God, I oh, just want to Get in their atmosphere and be helped. Maybe that's enough on the text. Let me draw to a close with with uh, a vision. Last night when I preached this, I said I got seven parts of this vision, and everybody came up to me at the end and said there were only six, so I left one out. And now that's being played on the recording at this very moment. It's one thing, when you're recorded, you, there is no fixing it. Just all your mistakes go north or here. So I'm going to try to get seven. And would you just raise your hand at the end if there's if going to do seven. Number one, this is a vision for what Bethlehem, God willing, would look like in 2004 if we felt the wonder, the sweetness, the preciousness of praying. Number one. In Matthew 6 6, Jesus said, When you go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So I dream of a church in which several thousand people daily find time and place of seclusion. Alone, totally alone. This is really hard for moms with lots of little children, but not impossible. It's hard for a busy dad, hard for everybody. But it's not impossible to find a place and a time of seclusion in which you alone will cry out to the God in secret about your own soul and your family or friends and your wider connections. God, who sees in secret, will reward you. Oh, may we be a people, thousands of them, who know the closet, as it's been called. Who know God in the closet, that is, who meet him alone. Number two, a word to married couples. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So have a dream of hundreds and hundreds of married couples at Bethlehem who come together without the children, and not just at mealtimes, either in the morning or in the evening, and just the two of you get on your knees and pray for each other that you would be more Christ-like, for the marriage to be more peaceful and precious, for the children to be saved and holy, for the church and its staff to be strong and humble and Christ-like and fruitful for the mission and then let the concentric circles grow. Every couple praying. Dads, it's mainly your responsibility, your husband's. It really is. It's mainly your, it's yours. You make this happen. And I I would say if you don't do it right now, and and I know I'm talking to a lot of embarrassed and frustrated couples right now who are not doing it, um, try Two minutes. Noel and I, just to give you one peek, we're, we're on our knees before we get in bed. And we don't stay there long. Two, three, four minutes. Depends on what, whether we're falling asleep or whether we've got some energy to pour out our hearts for the kids a little longer. But it doesn't. This is not hard to do. It's emotionally hard because you haven't done it for ten years and you feel, oh, this is going to be weird because we don't ever do this. But do it, guys. Just take the initiative. I know I'm talking to married couples. I know, let's go to number three. Got a worry about single parents especially. But just number three is families. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I take that to mean that must include bringing up these little ones in the biblical reality of prayer. So dads especially, but if you're single mom, you're the one. It means getting these kids together once or twice a day could be at the breakfast table, could be in the evening before they go to bed, could be both. that's the way we've tried to do it over the years and it doesn't have to be long. If you have little teeny ones it can't be long and you get them all together you read a passage of scripture or a Bible story book and then everybody prays. start them at about 18 months. If they can say the name Jesus, they can participate. say thank you Jesus. Thank you. That's good. Now your turn. That's all. And then from right on up until they're 18. I'll tell you, if you do this every day for 18 years with a child, he will have to work like, I'm going to say hell, he will have to work like hell not to do that as an adult. That's intentional to get it just right. Because it will take hell and high water to break an 18-year habit. Oh, mom and dad, this is hard work because the devil and your own sin are saying, I'm just too tired, and it doesn't work after this TV show, and blah, 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 endless. you got to walk all the way upstairs to get the Bible, or I know all the feelings that come. Please, parents, 2004, a great family time in prayer, and it doesn't you don't have to be a theologian. You don't need any theological education. You just know how to say, help! That's all you need. It takes a little humility for a dad to say, help! in front of his kids, but they need to see that. Number four, small groups. James five sixteen Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins. He's talking to the church now, not to families, just... Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. So I dream of hundreds of small groups at Bethlehem and close friendships in which more is happening than can happen in this service or happens individually. It's clusters of 10, 15, whatever your small group looks like, in which everybody is tuning in spiritually to where the others are and getting their hands on the ones who have extraordinary needs. I mean, get around them, put your hand on your shoulder. Yesterday was my wife's birthday. We have a birthday tradition. It's not a sort of picture of a small group, but it's a family group. So there were six of us. And uh, we went out to eat after the service last night. We came home, exchanged a few gifts, put the birthday stool in the middle of the of the uh, living room, and Noel sits on the birthday stool. Here's Molly, Abraham, Barnabas, Talitha, and me. All of us hands on, praying for Mom into her fifty something year. <laughs> And it's so powerful to pray in a group. There were tears. There were tears last night. I didn't know there'd be tears. There were tears. That happens when you get your hands on a human being who needs you. So small groups are a place. If you were to ask me where in this church do spiritual gifts happen? Well, they happen all over the place, of course. They're happening right now. But when you talk about knowledge, wisdom, miracles, faith, tongues, interpretation, prophecy. I'm seeing those in the small groups mainly. Not only, but mainly. Pray that God would fall in power upon your small group as you cry out to him and that everybody whose marriage is in trouble, or whose kid has gone haywire, who's got this strange pain in their stomach and they're going in for a CAT scan, or, 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 get your hands on those people and plead to God that he'd come down Oh, to be a part of a group like that is sweet. And if you're not in a small group, come to us and we will help you find one. Number five, staff, elders, committees. Here's where I'm going. Acts 6-4. The apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The counterpart to that at Bethlehem would be the elders and the staff ordained staff are part of those elders, about 25 of them. My dream is that every elder meeting, every staff meeting, both the 931 and the 1231 on Tuesdays, every committee meeting in this church, every task force meeting, every planning meeting, could be a pro-life task force, could be a women's ministries task force, every single meeting will not begin with prayer. But begin with a season of prayer. In other words, we must resist this mentality that we got work to be done. Quick pray so we can do the work. We must resist this mentality that the real work is in discussion and note taking and thinking through and planning and. Blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, that's got to be done. I've been doing it for 23 years here. I know the hard work of planning, and I know butting my head against a wall five hours into that discussion wondering why can't we solve this problem? Don't begin with prayer as an opening prayer. Say to the committee. Three, five, ten, twenty-five. The elders are good at this. I'm not, I'm not complaining here about the elders. I'm just telling you the way we do it and how we need to fan the flames. We share the word. We ask if anybody's got any needs. And then we go to prayer. And we're on our faces. And these guys, there's maybe 20 at a typical meeting, they're all praying. Oh, I die and go to heaven when I'm at an elder meeting. I tell you, one of the highest privileges of my life is to sit with the Council of Elders in this church and hear these leaders lift this congregation up to the Lord and plead to Him for His grace and blessing. And I just want that to be in I'm not saying it has to be 45 minutes or a half an hour or whatever. Just, just let everybody have a chance. I had an experience about 20 years ago of a way this works that was so beautiful and powerful and influential, I want to tell you about it. I was on a, a council with Carl Lundquist, the president at the time of, of uh, Bethel, and uh several other people. You'd recognize some of their names. It was to plan prayer for the BGC for a year. And uh, we got together and we prayed. Started the eight-hour meeting, with a half an hour prayer, roughly, and we were done, we started into our discussions, and about two hours into it, we were getting absolutely nowhere. We had whiteboard full of stuff and ideas everywhere and what could we do and nobody was seeing yes, that's what we should do. It was just mixed up. and Carl Lundquist said, "I think we should just pause here and ask the Lord for a breakthrough let's pray." So we bowed our heads, and probably I don't know five, six, seven minutes we prayed. Different ones prayed, and when we lifted our heads up, it's as though all of us saw on that white those whiteboards a pattern, and we knew, boom, here's where we're going. And I I stopped the whole meeting. I said, wait a minute, why did why why did that happen after six minutes of prayer and not after the thirty minutes of prayer? See, I'm a real problem, Chris. Analyst. Let's, we, we prayed 30 minutes. Why does six minutes work and 30 minutes doesn't work? See? Hmm. Well, Carl Unquist had an answer. It's not the Bible, but I took it as a wise word. He said, I think the 30 minutes of prayer at the beginning of a meeting gets you into a cultivation of mind and heart cultivates a mind and heart that prepares you to just work with God through the day. And God wants to be worked with through the day. He doesn't want to just be, oh, we did our 30-minute thing in an eight-hour meeting, and now we're doing stuff. He wants to walk with us through those and pause and say, any input for us here? Can you get our heads together here? So my point is, elders, FPAs, Task forces, committees, planning meetings. Start with a season of prayer. Then include God in the discussion. Return. Number, which number am I on? Six. Thank you. That's the one I skipped last night. So we'll get it in this morning. Two more. Prayer meetings. Prayer meetings. Prayer meetings. 1 Corinthians 14:16 listen to this all of you non out loud stay at home never pray with people people if you give thanks with your spirit how will anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying for you by giving thanks for you may be giving thanks well enough But the other person is not being built up. Does that blow your mind away? I mean, that text says we are sometimes to pray so others can hear us and say amen to what we're saying and be built up by our going vertical. I used to think just the opposite. I used to think if you have in mind the person next to you while you're praying and what they're going to make of what you pray, you're a hypocrite. Because you're supposed to be talking to God, period. Forget what they think and what they get help from. This, t- Let me read it again. If you give thanks with your spirit, that means either praying in tongues or it might just mean quietly whispering, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? In other words, you're supposed to be able to say amen when sometimes when people pray. You can't do that if you don't know what they're saying. Amen means I agree. Amen, I want that to happen. When Sherrod prays here, I just went up. Mm, amen, all the time. Verse 17, For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up, to which a cynic would say, Who cares? I'm talking to God. Isn't that interesting? Yes, you're talking to God, but God wants to be talked to Sometimes in a group. It's called a prayer meeting. (laughs) In a group, you talk out loud to God and know other people are hearing you and letting them in on your heart. That's a good thing. That's a good thing when you let somebody in on your heart for God. Your need, your longing, your passion... That's a really good thing to happen. And it's even better when they hear it and say, Amen. Oh, I agree with that. I wish I had prayed that. In fact, I am praying that right now. Oh, what wonderful prayer meetings. We have prayer meetings at this church every morning of the week and Wednesday night. This week, we won't do it on New Year's Day, But there'll be prayer meetings every noontime. And we're dreaming about, Lord, where else? Where should we put them? None of us is satisfied with the corporate prayer life of this church. None of us. Some of you have ideas about how to do it. We're always listening. We're always praying, Lord, where, how, when, what is the nature of the prayer life corporately? So my dream is that more and more of you would feel a burden to be in prayer meetings when they happen. And I don't have any law to lay down about that. How many to come to, when to come. It's just they're there, and it's good to pray out loud around other people. So God bless you prayer meetings. Number seven, and I'm done. The essence of worship, corporately, is communion with God. This is a prayer meeting. This is a prayer meeting. I call preaching expository exaltation. That simply means I try to take a precious portion of Scripture And open it and exult over it. You wonder why I do this sort of stuff? I don't think about it. I promise you, I never stand in front of a mirror. I never contemplate what I'm doing right now with my hands. I never thought about this. This just happened. So, maybe it shouldn't. I don't know. The point is, I try and in much prayer to exult over the word and not just stand here and say, prayer, the general meaning of the word. Supplication, it is the secular word with specific meaning to request. With thanksgiving, it should always accompany the prayer and the supplication. Verse 8. I think that's not preaching. The reason is there's a disjunction between truth and reality. Bodily reality, voice reality, emotion reality, thinking reality. Christianity is about persons being wrought upon by God. And so, my dream for worship is that you would come praying, that you would sing praying, That you would listen, praying. That you would do the responsive readings, praying. That you would walk out, praying. That you would carry this service before, during, and after in prayer. And that it would be prayer. That's my dream. And I think I got all seven of them in. This is prayer week. I just ask and plead with you in the name of Jesus that you get alone today somewhere and just think, okay, Lord, I heard a challenge to be a more prayerful person. Show me some changes that you'd like to make this year. Maybe a little one, maybe a big one. Just ask him. He'll show you. He wants you to pray. I don't think he would deny you that prayer if you say, I'd like to make some changes and become a better prayer. He'll do it. Let's pray. So, Father, now as we close, I ask that you would come and pour out a spirit of prayer and supplication like you promised to do in Zechariah 12.10. You poured out a spirit of prayer and cries for mercy. We want to be a praying church. Grant, I pray, that it would come. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.